In September of 2001, America experienced a series of calculated attacks meant to devastate and scare the American people. Nineteen Islamic extremists associated with a group known as Al-Qaeda hijacked four planes and carried out suicide attacks, killing nearly 3,000 people that day. A week later, a second wave of attacks had started, but this time their murder weapon was a deadly infectious disease. Inhalation anthrax. We were facing a new threat one that had been biologically engineered. In just a few short months, five people would be dead and 17 others would have their lives changed forever. What was even scarier, that was as the investigation continued, all signs pointed to this attack being executed by one of our own. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. America was already reeling from the attacks of 9-11 when the first case of anthrax was made public. On October 4th, a man named Bob Stevens, who worked for American Media in Florida, was hospitalized with many worrisome symptoms. He was feverish, nauseous, vomiting, and disoriented. Bob had been slowly worsening since mid-September when he was on a trip to North Carolina for work. By the time he was admitted to the hospital, it was too late. Bob Stevens would die on October 5th, 2001, in Boca Raton, Florida. By the time Stevens had passed and news of his death hit the front page, he was already the fifth person infected by anthrax. The other four cases were isolated to New York and New Jersey, and all four recovered from the illness. The first round of letters were found to have been mailed on September 18th, just a week after 9-11, from a mailbox in Princeton, New Jersey. The letters were disguised as having come from a student at a fictitious elementary school in New Jersey. The writing was simple, black, bold, block-style handwriting. When the letters were opened, a talk-like powder was sealed inside, which was a form of inhalant anthrax. He was highly lethal and light, so it carried through the air very easily. It was clear that America was dealing with a sophisticated killer. The number of confirmed cases continued to increase throughout the next few days. It was found that a second round of letters were mailed on October 9th. This round of letters, however, was sent to NBC News headquarters in New York, as well as the New York Post, to Senate Majority Leader Tom Dashley and to the offices of Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. 
By October 23rd, two postal workers who worked at the Brentwood facility in Washington, D.C. died of inhalation of anthrax. And in case you didn't know, the Brentwood facility is the facility that sorts the mail for the White House. Many cases were confirmed and patients received treatment and recovered. The next death occurred on October 31st, Halloween. A woman by the name of Kathy Gwynn was working in the stockroom for a Manhattan-based eye, ear, and throat specialist when she started experiencing symptoms. She was admitted into the emergency department at a local hospital on the 28th and died a few days later. The last fatal victim was a 94-year-old, Adelie Lundgren, a woman from southwest Connecticut. She lived alone as her husband had died in 1977. It is unknown how she was infected, but best believe that her mail was cross-contaminated somehow. She was admitted to the hospital under suspicion of pneumonia. Blood tests revealed she had been exposed to anthrax, and by the 21st, Miss Lundgren was dead. Lundgren was the last victim to pass from the exposure. However, 17 other people had been exposed and made sick, including a seven-month-old baby who had been exposed when he was taken to work with his mother. The FBI quickly conducted an investigation into the specifics of the anthrax, hoping to find a fingerprint that would lead detectives to where it originated. They quickly realized that their labs at the FBI were not equipped to handle the anthrax in a safe manner, so samples were sent to several independent labs, including the United States Army Medical Institute of Infectious Diseases, which was located in Frederick, Maryland. The sample was handed over to the Army's top anthrax vaccine expert, Dr. Bruce Ivins, for a preliminary report. At first contact, Dr. Ivins was fascinated by the anthrax. Unlike the usual wet anthrax that he had worked with, this strain was a dry, light, fluffy powder. Dr. Ivins said that the spores were not just your average garage spores, but were done professionally with high-tech equipment. Another sample of the anthrax was sent to Dr. Peter Keim, a genetic consultant in Arizona. Dr. Keim's lab was host to the largest collection of various strains of anthrax in the world. The FBI was hoping that the lab could tear apart the DNA of the strain to be able to pinpoint what the parent strain was. To everyone's surprise, the strain that the anthrax originated from was known as the Ames strain and was the primary strain used by the Army's bioweapons defense system. And now, the compass points right into the United States Army Medical Institute of Infectious Diseases, which were being used at the time to consult the FBI, in case you forgot. The original purpose of the Frederick Disease Center base was actually to create and test germs for bioweapons until the U.S. signed a treaty banning the use of bioweapons. The purpose of the base was then shifted to creating defensive measures against bioterrorism, like the anthrax vaccine, for instance. The case was then dubbed the Amerithrax case, as the FBI was looking for a homegrown terrorist now. All of the scientists that were working with the FBI to identify the anthrax were now themselves under the microscope. Tensions to solve who sent the letters was mounting, as the case went months with no suspects. The new head of the FBI at the time, Dr. Robert Mueller, was feeling the heat, not only from the president and the American people, but also by the media. One columnist 
from the New York Times started writing about who he thought was the suspect. A man named Nicholas Kristof wrote about an American scientist who worked in the bioweapons field and had access to create and carry out these attacks. And in June 2002, Dr. Stephen Hatfield was the target. He had worked at the Army base in Maryland and lectured many times on the subject of The FBI began to investigate Dr. Hatfield. They put him under 24-hour surveillance, raided his home and office and the home of his girlfriend, hoping he would eventually crack. But even in all of that, no physical evidence was ever found linking Dr. Hatfield to the attacks. No equipment was found, no spores, no nothing. However, many at the FBI believed that they had the suspect they were looking for and continued to pursue Dr. Hatfield. The Department of Justice even named him as a person of interest in the case publicly on TV during a news conference. They thought this would crack the doctor into confessing. However, it had the exact opposite effect. And to the surprise of the DOJ and the FBI, Dr. Hatfield went to the media. I want to look my fellow Americans directly in the eye and declare to them, I am not the anthrax killer. I know nothing about the anthrax attacks. I had absolutely nothing to do with this terrible crime. It is definitely not good to be the girlfriend of a person of interest. My girlfriend was locked inside an FBI car and hauled off to FBI headquarters and interrogated for hours without once being told she has the right to leave any time she wished. Her requests for a lawyer were delayed and made. It has an investigation that is characterized by the apparent avoidance of any major avenue of inquiry except the one decided upon by the Attorney General. Most importantly, it is driven by a compelling and overwhelming desire that the FBI look good at any cost, regardless of the price and individual freedom, due process, common decency, and civil liberties. He was angry. The FBI was tearing him apart and smearing his name across the newspapers as the anthrax killer. They were convinced they had the right guy. He had access to the labs. He was working with anthrax at the time of the attacks. He had the knowledge and skills, which few others possessed, to create and carry out a plan like this. But still, there was no physical evidence pointing to Dr. Hatfield. The FBI attempted to use scent dogs to find evidence in Hatfield's apartment, and on a tip, they also searched a small pond in an isolated area in the Maryland woods. They decided to drain the pond on the suspicion that Dr. Hatfield's was conducting experiments in a secret underwater lab that he had created. No joke. The pond was almost 1.5 million gallons of water. It took four weeks to drain and costed about $250,000, according to one report. At the bottom of the lake, guess what it was? Go ahead, guess. No, you're wrong. It was a small box that was basically a makeshift turtle trap. The FBI had hit an all-time low point and another dead end. Hatfield sued the U.S. government and won a $5.8 million judgment. Hatfield was cleared after five years in June of 2008. 
With no new leads in the investigation, the team starts to re-examine the anthrax, hoping the science can lead them in the right direction. An independent lab finds a marker that indicates the anthrax came from a specific strain known as RMR-1029, a flask of liquid anthrax that was kept under watch by Dr. Bruce Ivins. Dr. Ivins had given the FBI a preliminary snapshot of the anthrax samples back in 2001 when the attacks first started. He was used as a consultant throughout the investigation, and now the FBI was combing through the last five to six years of his life, trying to tie him to the attacks. They presented evidence that Dr. Ivins had spent a lot of time in the lab, after hours, alone, around the time of the attacks. Although many media outlets have found in recent years that Dr. Ivins was conducting time-sensitive vaccine experiments at that time. His colleagues also came to his defense, saying there was no way Ivins created and produced such a large amount of a new form of anthrax in the little time frame they were working with. He had access and even cared for the flask where the strain originated from. Again, though, it was proven that over a hundred people in the labs also had access to the same flask. As far as motive, the FBI tried to say Dr. Ivins was protecting his job because of recent budget cuts to his department, saying he created the crisis of an anthrax breakout to intensify the need for an anthrax vaccine in order to get more funding for his program. Jesus Christ, if someone was that selfish. Like, do you understand what they're charging this man with? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a fireman going out and starting fires so he has something to do. This is crazy. Other sources, obviously, say this is not true, that although some funding had been cut around the time, a large grant had also been given to continue Dr. Ivan's research. So there you go, large grant was given around the same time. Kind of destroys that motive a little bit. Now, Ivan's did suffer from some mental issues. Let's play devil's advocate here for a minute. And when his emails and insurance records were exposed, his darkest secrets came to life. He suffered from episodes of paranoid delusion, depression, and obsession. Ivans had become obsessed with the sorority Kappa Kappa Gamma, even breaking into a sorority house to steal the group's secret codebook. He admitted to the FBI about his fascination and how he would drive hours from his house to visit different sorority houses in the area. In his basement, a homemade shooting range was found. There were a lot of guns, women's underwear, and some other strange objects. The FBI made a link between where the letters were mailed near the Princeton campus and a KKG administrative office just a block away. This was their tying of Ivan's to the location of the mailings, which was about a three-hour drive from where he lived in Frederick. The FBI also tried to say Ivans was intentionally misleading him when one of his samples came back and did not match the flask RMR-1029. Although Ivans had sent two samples before this that had matched perfectly with the flask, the negative that was reported was taken as an act of deception. When Ivans was asked about the information, he claims it was a mistake in his research. And when Ivan's office, home, car, and anything else was searched, no spores were ever found. 
So the evidence against Ivan's is his unstable mental health, a spike in lab hours, and a strange, unexplained KKG obsession? However, with the mounting pressure to solve a case that now had been active for seven years with no real leads, the FBI pressed heavy on Dr. Ivans. His clearance into the labs was revoked, and Ivans was reassigned. His colleagues were told not to speak to him, and many avoided him voluntarily. A police report showed where Ivans had made threats to his colleagues, claiming he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. He was forcibly removed from his office in front of everyone. With an already unstable mental state, the FBI created too much pressure, and Dr. Ivans did break, but not exactly in the way they had hoped. On July 29, 2008, Dr. Ivans commits suicide by overdosing on Tylenol PM. His last recorded words were written on a note which he left to his wife, and it read, quote, I have a terrible headache. I'm going to take some Tylenol and sleep in tomorrow. Please let me sleep. End quote. Dr. Ivans maintained his innocence until his death, and the FBI never successfully proved he was guilty. But still, on February 19, 2010, the DOJ made the announcement that the case had come to a close. With the combined efforts of the DOJ, FBI, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, the investigation provided evidence that acknowledged Dr. Bruce Ivins mailed the anthrax letters. Although many outside evaluations have found many discrepancies in the FBI's investigation, even though Dr. Ivins was never tried, the case was considered closed. But to this day, many still defend Dr. Ivins' innocence, at least until proven otherwise, citing that the case was circumstantial at best. Was Dr. Ivins a homegrown terrorist that managed to slip through the cracks unnoticed for years? Was he just a mentally unstable man who cracked under too much pressure put on him by the FBI unnecessarily? And is the real killer still out there? Did Al-Qaeda work from the inside? Did the real killer slip through our fingers? We may never know. But what we do know, even though we may not realize it, is the effects that took place after these attacks. The way it affected our country, our government, our society. David Willman, he's the author of The Mirage Man, which talks about his investigation into the anthrax mailings. In this seminar he did at Smith Business School, he describes the after-effect of the anthrax murders. Here we have anthrax, which our government had characterized as a weapon of mass destruction, uh, landing squarely within the heart of our national government. Uh, so again, it would be hard to overstate the, uh, the, the panic, uh, the confusion that, uh, that followed that. Let me just tick off several things that, that happened here. Uh, the Hart Senate office building, where Daschle's letter was opened on the fifth floor, and the most heavily occupied Senate office building in Washington, uh, was shut down for uh, several months for uh, intense cleanup. Um, the, uh, several House buildings were also affected, other Senate buildings. In fact, the Speaker of the House Representatives shut down all operations of the House for a week. The operations of the United States Supreme Court had to be shifted from the court building to a separate courthouse in Washington. The first time the court had conducted any official business 
outside of uh, its building since that building uh, had been opened decades earlier. Um, delivery of all mail stopped at the White House uh, for years, I think to this day, as a matter of fact. Uh, there were huge impacts. You talk about the, the commercial and business impact. Huge impacts on business, on credit card companies, uh, on government mail, and even on residential mail, uh, with literally billions of dollars of consequences uh, for both government and, and the private sector. Um, so, uh, as I also establish uh, in, in this book, The Mirage Man, um, the, uh, the anthrax letter attacks had other uh, more lasting and uh, the five deaths, uh, which are horrific tragedies and always will be for those families, but the lasting impacts for our society have even had, I would say, more profound effects and impacts. Uh, first of all was uh, the Patriot Act, which I'm sure you've all heard something about, but it was legislation that was uh, drafted immediately followed the following the September 11th attacks. And of course it was the precedent of September 11th that just amplified the panic with the anthrax letter attacks. Uh, the Patriot Act was actually, uh, despite the you know, considerable public concern about uh, the, the September 11th attacks, was being slowed down in the Senate. Senator uh, Leahy, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, in consultation with the Senate leadership, including Majority Leader Daschle, uh, was slowing things down as they do in the Senate. Uh, that is the great deliberative body, and, and the objective there is to do what you're supposed to do in the Senate, which is actually read the bill. Uh, but then the anthrax letter attacks uh, hit, and there was, there was no, no more waiting. I've had uh, members of both houses on both sides of the aisle tell me that at that point in time there was, there was no uh, opportunity to delay any further. It was rammed through the House uh, without members uh, being familiar with the line details of that legislation. And obviously the Patriot Act has uh, just tremendous consequences for uh, civil liberties in this country. The second uh, major <laughs> policy uh, consequence of the anthrax letter attacks was the uh, debate about whether or not we should go to war with Iraq. Um, the anthrax attacks at WMD was literally a, almost in the case of Senator Daschle's office, although Daschle is not in this category of those who were gunning for Saddam, but it was a gift in the lap of the ideologues who wanted to go after Saddam. Um, let's recall that some of those ideologues, namely Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld, Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, were among uh, a, a list of, uh, of ideologues who had written a letter to then President Clinton in 1998 saying that the only acceptable policy uh, in the Middle East was to take out Saddam Hussein, obviously forcibly. Uh, so the anthrax attacks were immediately spun and glommed onto by those who were gunning uh, for Saddam. In the interviews for my book, um, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, I would say to his credit, acknowledged that he was convinced that the anthrax letter attacks were perpetrated by either Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and or Al-Qaeda. He was convinced of that through the uh, launch of war against Iraq. Um, and Tom Ridge, who became uh, President Bush's Homeland Security <coughs> Advisor and the first Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, told me that without question there were people throughout the administration, more importantly throughout the White House, who were absolutely convinced that Saddam was behind the anthrax letter attacks. And uh, he, he characterized that, did uh, Tom Ridge, as uh, an example and a very unfortunate example of conclusions getting ahead of facts and evidence. 
uh, former President Bush himself. Um, this is a, uh, it's a, it amazes me how this uh, observation he made in his memoir, Decision Points, has not gotten hardly any circulation in the media that I'm aware of. Uh, President Bush said very little about the anthrax letter attacks in Decision Points, but he did say um, that uh, the big question in the run-up to war was, uh, concerning the attacks, the letter attacks, was who was responsible for those attacks. And he quickly followed that by saying that a, quote, respected European intelligence service had told the administration in real time that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax letter attacks. So, huge impact. Uh, another uh, direct consequence of the anthrax letter attacks is something called Project BioShield, uh, which sets aside uh, billions of dollars for the development of medical products that are intended someday to perhaps make us safer in the event of another biological uh, attack, an, an instance of bioterrorism. Uh, in tandem with Project BioShield, uh, this country has by now spent over $60 billion exponentially growing these uh, bio-containment uh, laboratories, and uh, that's not quite an oxymoron, but it's highly questionable as to, as to how good these facilities are at keeping uh, pathogens such as anthrax uh, within their walls. So we now have, we're growing these facilities uh, as we speak. We've brought in over 11,000 new scientists and technicians who have daily access to these awful, uh, highly portable pathogens. And I don't have to tell you smart students uh, uh, what the security implications of that are. I mean, that is an ongoing 24-7 security problem for this country, making sure that we don't have another enemy within who would do harm to his own or her own country uh, with these materials. Um, so taking all this into account, um, the anthrax letter attacks, uh, in my estimation, based on my research, clearly rank among the most consequential crimes uh, in our nation's history, um, and also the most scientifically challenging uh, case in the history of federal law enforcement. So, um, I'd like you to stand back with me, if you could, just for a second, from the yellow tape perimeter of, of the crimes, uh, and, and, uh, and perhaps you'll agree with me that uh, given these severe consequences of policy, uh, there must be some life-saving lessons to be learned and applied from the anthrax letter attacks. Um, if anybody disagrees with me, please uh, raise your hand. Um, the, the difficulty is, and, and this gets to uh, me taking on this project of, of the Mirage Man, none of this can happen. The learning of the lessons, the application of those lessons uh, can happen if the underlying fundamental facts and circumstances surrounding the original crimes remain confused or uh, worse, uh, vandalized. So it, it was my belief, it is my belief, that the country deserves to know what happened here. Um, we're a decade on from the events. And this is why I set out to research and write this book, to separate verifiable fact from fiction. Um, this book is an on-the-record account. Um, I decided at the outset to let the chips fall where they may. And uh, I found that in the aftermath, when in combing back through the record, uh, conducting more than 300 interviews, uh, reading uh, tens of thousands of pages of, uh, of documents, uh, I found that in the aftermath of the anthrax letter attacks, a time when the country most needed journalists to be scrupulous and skeptical in their reporting, too many accounts took at face value or amplified claims that uh, were just dead wrong. 
So I deconstruct a number of examples of this uh, in the book, uh, and I'm not going to regale you with too many of them here, but I'll just give you a couple. Uh, on October 26, 2001, Brian Ross, chief investigative correspondent for ABC News, probably the most uh, prominent uh, investigative journalist in, in broadcast news, uh, came on air on World News Tonight. L World News Tonight led with his exclusive report uh, saying that uh, based on firsthand sources that he had, that, that uh, Ross and ABC had, that the uh, anthrax sent to Senator Daschle um, had been chemically treated, quote, weaponized, but chemically treated apparently with bentonite, uh, a material that uh, is, a, is a signature of Saddam Hussein's former biological weapons uh, program. Uh, similar reports persisted uh, in the run-up to war over the next more than a year, and not just within the established uh, mainstream media, although there are plenty of such accounts. Uh, I want to particularly mention on May 1st, 2002, uh, JAMA, the influential uh, scientific and medical publication, formerly known as the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, reported that the attack material, the anthrax used in the letter attacks, uh, had been, quote, chemically treated, unquote, to make it more lethal. Uh, the JAMA authors uh, attached no footnote and cited no basis or attribution for that assertion, an assertion which continues to be repeated in the scientific literature, in the vaunted peer-reviewed scientific literature. And of course, uh, it has uh, derivative impact on uh, accounts that are in the blogosphere and in the mainstream media. My research for the Mirage Man found that there was no credible basis for these assertions, none. Uh, all of which fueled the rush to war. Okay, interesting. So war is the reason. But we still need someone to take the fall for this, right? This is where Bruce Ivins comes in. And I'll let author David Willman give you a little background on Mr. Ivins. So, uh, on to the question of, you know, who could have done this? Um, the Mirage Man provides the first biographical portrait uh, of a, a, a particular scientist, you may have heard of him, uh, a fellow named Bruce Ivins. And to compose that biographical portrait in, in The Mirage Man, uh, I traveled to uh, a, a small town in the southwestern corner of Ohio, about 40 miles outside Cincinnati, uh, called Lebanon, Lebanon, Ohio. Um, it's, a, it's a town that evokes the to this day, the main street evokes the, uh, the middle America of, uh, of, of Norman Rockwell. And it's where Bruce Ivins was born in 1946, the youngest of three sons. Bruce's father, Randall Ivins, was a pharmacist and the second generation proprietor of a family business called Ivins Drugs, established in 1893. Randall was a graduate of Princeton, and he was a, a well-liked, uh, generous, uh, very you know, chatty man. Um, but appearances can be deceiving, and I think this is a through line for maybe this conference, which is uh, appearances can be deceiving and assumptions need to be constantly tested and reevaluated. So I went to Lebanon and uh, proceeded to interview as many people, and it turns out there's a lot of them uh, still around who, uh, who went to school with Bruce Ivins, grew up with him, who taught him, uh, who uh, cast him in a high school play. Um, and uh, who worked at the family drugstore. Um, and uh, what I found was that the exterior of Lebanon was uh, certainly not Norman Rockwell uh, f 
before, Bruce Ivins, he in fact grew up in, in really was literally a house of whores. Uh, his mother, Mary Ivins, uh, exerted tyrannical dominance uh, in the home and actually at, at Ivins' drugs. Um, and she attacked Randall Ivins, it turned out, I learned, with whatever might be at hand. It could be a broom handle, could be a fork uh, into the hand, could be a skillet to the head. Um, and she micromanaged Bruce, who she saw as her prodigy. Uh, Bruce's schoolmates, his teachers, uh, and others uh, who knew the family in Lebanon told me that in their estimation, uh, Mary Ivins left a lasting and a haunting mark on him. Um, yet it's also important to, to recognize that from an early age, uh, Bruce Ivins was a scientifically gifted student uh, and at the same time uh, abnormally uh, isolated socially. Uh, he had very few friends. He was known as the, the kid you could always see walking around uh, by himself. Um, and, and soon enough in his, in his life, Bruce showed that, that he, he craved and he demanded, as it turned out, uh, two things. And again, these are through lines to understand Bruce Ivins. Uh, he craved and he demanded attention and acceptance. Um, of course, a lot of us like those things. Uh, but Bruce Ivins was different in how he went about seeking them. Uh, he sought attention and approval in, in increasingly strange ways, in hidden ways, always in manipulative ways. Um, you might be coming on to where this title of the Mirage Man come from. Uh, this is part of the genesis of it, a big part of it. He held grudges. Uh, he pursued vendettas uh, anonymously, invariably. He did, he did these things. Uh, he tormented various women and institutions. And he did it in ways that uh, avoided personal accountability for himself. Um, a couple of quick, quick examples um, of which there are many in the book. Um, after Bruce left Lebanon out of high school, he went to the University of Cincinnati. And uh, a, a really powerful thing that turned out happened in his life there was as an undergraduate, he asked another uh, undergraduate out for, for what we used to call date. Uh, and um, she uh, said no, she, uh, she declined, uh, and quickly forgot about it. But Bruce never did, and he attributed her rejection uh, to her membership in a particular sorority, uh, Kappa Kappa Gamma. Uh, it was a, and Bruce uh, then focused his, his hatred and his vendetta uh, on the institution of Kappa Kappa Gamma and on a number of uh, Kappas who might come across him at various points in his life. Uh, one of them was a woman named Nancy Haigwood, uh, who Bruce met at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, after he'd been hired uh, right out of Cincinnati as a postdoctoral researcher. Um, he was, became absolutely uh, infatuated and obsessed with her. She rather quickly figured out that he was uh, way different and tried to put some space between them, um, which of course he resented. Um, I bring this up because uh, about a year after Bruce had left Chapel Hill and moved up to Maryland uh, with his wife, um, he drove the 300 plus miles from suburban Maryland down to Chapel Hill by himself. This was in 1979. And he broke into a room uh, at, uh, on campus and stole Nancy Hagwood's laboratory notebook. Uh, Nancy was a PhD student, a uh, microbiologist herself. And this was in an era before flash drives, uh, before all the conveniences. Uh, so as a doctoral student, everything 
in the, in the, all of her pursuit of a doctorate was on the line here uh, in, that, in that lab notebook, all of her data from her experiments. Um, so she engaged the police, her faculty members, fellow students, they were trying to find uh, this thing. And uh, then Nancy uh, soon received a, an anonymous note. And the anonymous note told her that if she wanted her lab book, net notebook back to go search in a particular uh, US mailbox on a street corner in Chapel Hill on a particular afternoon. With the help of the police, they did this. Boom, it was there. Uh, I'll get way ahead of myself and tell you that Bruce Ivins uh, did all these things. Um, that, that same year of 1979, and you, and you know, again, this seems like kind of prankish, even though Bruce Ivins was in his mid-30s by this time, I would say pretty creepy. But some people, if it's just a one-off, you just say, well, maybe he had a bad week or something. Uh, but that same year of 1979, Bruce Ivins uh, started seeing a psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., Dr. Naomi Heller. And again, uh, all this is uh, detailed in the book. But uh, Bruce Ivins confided to Dr. Heller that, um, <clears throat> that he was completely obsessed with Nancy Higwood. He saw, saw in her qualities uh, that he wished he had had in his mother and in his then wife. Uh, but he couldn't have Nancy Higwood, and so he hated her. And he detailed to uh, Dr. Heller a very detailed plot that he, had, uh, he said he had just abandoned to poison her and to kill her. Uh, again, this was in 1979. Um, Bruce Ivins would go on to harass and torment uh, Nancy Hagwood uh, for years and years to come. Uh, nonetheless, he was a PhD microbiologist, and uh, he was a solid bench scientist. Um, and in December of 1980, uh, the United States Army hired him uh, from the Defense Department's Research University down in Bethesda, where he'd been working for a little over a year. The US Army hired him in December 1980 <clears throat> to work uh, at the Biowarfare Research Center at Fort Detrick, uh, about 50 miles from here in Frederick, Maryland. And this was uh, a place known as the US Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, uh, known by an acronym called USAMRID. Uh, so Ivans goes to work there. He was hired uh, for one purpose, and that was to work with anthrax, uh, to grow it, to purify it, to prepare it for tests on animals. He had not worked with uh, anything uh, dangerous uh, of, of this uh, caliber before in his career, but they brought him in for his, uh, for his bench skills and to work with anthrax. He was given a uh, secret level security clearance. Um, Ivan's proved to be a quick study at Fort Detrick. Um, part of his, uh, in his toolkit, you would say, was he was unfailingly deferential to the uniformed personnel, all of his superiors at Fort Detrick. He was hired as a civilian. Um, this was a quality that was much valued in the Army culture. And uh, <clears throat> the fact of the matter was that everyone knew that Bruce was a much better scientist than all the uniformed personnel. Uh, but he didn't lord that over them in any way, uh, uh, unlike some PhDs who the uniform personnel f felt uh, somewhat snubbed by once in, once in a while. Um, nonetheless, Bruce's secret obsessions and his vendettas, uh, they continued. Um, one night he drove uh, from his home in Frederick, Maryland to West Virginia University in Morgantown and broke into a uh, ground level, through a ground level window into a Kappa house and spent uh, the better part of an hour roaming around in there and grabbing artifacts, including what for him was a, a real prize, the Book of Ritual for Kappa Kappa Gamma. <clears throat> uh, 
uh, I should say he'd already, he'd already done a, a burglary uh, down in Chapel Hill a couple of years earlier. Uh, and, and in that burglary, he had gotten the, what's called the cipher uh, from a Kappa house, which enabled him, once he got the Book of Ritual, to decode uh, everything. I mean, Bruce was just obsessed with codes uh, and being able to, to manipulate things behind the scenes, again, with anonymity. Loved the game. Um, and love the attention that uh, that it would soon enough generate for him. So uh, he uh, he took the book of ritual. He took the cipher, and what did he do with it? Well, he took out uh, classified ads in two magazines, Mother Jones and Rolling Stone, and offered to mail all the secrets of Kappa Kappa Gamma to anyone who would write into him at this particular post office box uh, up in uh, Gaithersburg that was, by the way, he took out the post office box in the name of Nancy Hagwood's husband. Nice trick, a guy named Carl Scandella. Um, so indeed, quite a few people wrote into him. He had a female name, Carla Sander, on the post office box. And uh, I should say that uh, a prominent uh, columnist, uh, Jeffrey Zaslow, was among those who bid on it and did a whole column in the Chicago Tribune on, uh, on Carla Sander and her vendetta against uh, Kappa Kappa, Ganda, Kappa, Kappa Gamma. Um, I guess I'm uh, prompted to mention that because Jeffrey died a very tragic death just last Friday uh, while giving a lecture, a talk uh, on, a, on another best-selling book that he just wrote. I had a real nice uh, exchange with him in, in researching the book. Uh, but you can see very smart people uh, were, were conned by Bruce Ivins uh, over the years. Um, yeah, but he was able to keep this bizarre behavior and this dual alternative existence hidden. Um, but you, know, you ask yourself, was anybody noticing? Was he really keeping it all under the radar? And, and it turns out there were plenty of signs, I think, with the benefit of hindsight. Not, you wouldn't even, even need the benefit of hindsight to see there were plenty of signs of in, his instability. Um, on February 18, 1987, in fact, Ivan's completed a federal uh, medical form uh, and was asked questions, uh, you know, have you ever had any personal uh, problems with uh, these particular things? Hallucinations, improbable beliefs, anxiety, memory change, okay? He put question marks next to each one of those. Hallucinations, improbable beliefs. So I'd like to ask you a question. Um, if you were supervising a scientist who had unlimited 24-7 access to the deadliest anthrax known to exist in this planet. Would these responses by Bruce Ivins have caused you as a supervisor to look more closely at his suitability for, for this work? All right, guys, I know that was a lengthy segment there, but I thought a lot of that was important information, um, some very important background that I couldn't find otherwise uh, on Mr. Ivins. And again, that was author David Willman, he wrote the book The Mirage Man, which is an investi investigation into the anthrax mailings. Highly recommend the book if you are interested in learning more. Now again, with all this information, uh, there was nothing concrete to ever convict Bruce Ivins um, before he committed suicide, of course. And that's, that's another thing. Uh, I'm, the, the suicide almost... Almost made it worse, in my opinion. Uh, it made the suspicion worse. Why would a man commit suicide? I know he was under a lot of pressure from the FBI. Um, 
but the man works with controlled diseases. He should be used to to dealing with a lot of pressure. And let's be honest, uh, if Bruce Ivins is the guy, there's no way he acted alone. These men that do these, that carry out these acts throughout history, they are rarely acting alone. Most of the time, they're front men for some bigger plot or scheme, um, but that's for another episode. Guys, you may have noticed that there was no Lawrence synopsis this week. Um, I apologize. We apologize for that. It was a busy week for Lauren. Um, if you don't know, we have another podcast called True Crime Guys uh, that we've been doing for about four years. And so he has been working diligently with True Crime Guys, kind of uh, taking the lead role there and helping us to kind of plan more for our future with True Crime Guys. And um, so this week there will be no, there is no Lauren synopsis. I'm sorry, you won't get to hear his amazing theme song. Um, but hopefully, uh, this other opinion from Mr. David Willman will kind of suffice. I know he's not nearly as entertaining and as opinionated as Lauren, but it'll have to do. So, guys, I want to thank you for supporting the show. Um, a great way to support the show is Patreon.com patreon.com slash snu podcast um, if you have the patreon app you can search strange and unexplained if you have trouble finding it it's there's a link to the patreon page at the bottom of every episode description so you guys can check that out as well as sources used for every episode um, so i want to thank all the new patrons that have come on board lately I also want to give a huge thanks to anyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. That is the number one way to help the show, guys, um, if you can't afford to be a patron. Uh, real quick, though, if you can afford to be a patron, uh, patreon.com slash SNU, you can get access to two other shows that I do through that Patreon platform. That is Strange Shorts. That is any interesting topics that I find that um, may not be quite long enough to do a full episode on. So sometimes I'll chop them up, and it's a little more laid back. Um, some of them are a little lighter. Some of them are funnier. Um, and then I also do another show called The Palate Cleanser. The Palate Cleanser has one rule. There will be no true crime on there. Um, so if you guys want to listen to that to help cleanse your palate a little before you go to sleep at night, um, maybe there's some funny things on there. Maybe there's some serious things on there. Maybe some things that make you think. Maybe there's music. Um, I never know. The Palate Cleanser is kind of an open slate for me to be expressive, and um, I use it as such. So um, I want to give a shout out to a new reviewer that just reviewed the podcast this week. Guys, I try to I try to stay up on these shout outs on a weekly basis. Um, sometimes I miss people. I apologize for that, but I will get you a shout. Uh, so I want to thank two new reviewers, uh, Kate. Kate, good, I don't know, Kate, and then she fell on the keyboard, five stars, put, love these guys, love these guys, she's talking about me and Lauren, uh, which we make up True Crime Guys Productions. Um, also, I want to thank Drock35, five stars, says, outstanding, this is a really outstanding show, great work, fire emojis, thank you very much, Drock. Um, guys, your reviews help very much, they help to uh, point other listeners in the right direction, when you give a description of the show in your review, 
It helps listen, but the but the best way to help the show is just to just tune in every week. We appreciate that. Subscribe, um, download, tell your friends. Follow us on social media at S and U Podcast. Um, that's on Instagram, Twitter, and Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Um, you guys can also find links to almost anything at uh, TrueCrimeGuys.com, or if you have a suggestion for the show. You can email me at sndupodcast at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can direct message on any form of social media. All right, guys, that is my spiel this week. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed this uh, throwback into the Anthrax mailings. I know uh, a lot of people know about it, but they don't really know the surrounding details they don't really know the surrounding uh a lot about the suspects and why they were suspected in the way they were they were so um i hope this gives you a little better understanding of a very strange but important time in american history so guys again i want to thank you for tuning in and remember be strange just don't be a stranger